The American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 30, The Battle of Cerro Gordo. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Okay, welcome back. I know it's been a while since we had a new episode on Mexico, so I hope you're ready for some history fun. First, before we get started, as always, let me remind you to check out the website. It's www.theamericanhistorypodcast.com. You should also join the email list. Now, I don't send emails out too often, but I do send them out um, prior to a new episode being released, and I send them out every now and then um, when I see something interesting on the internet or on the news or something that's worth commenting on. Maybe some sort of ridiculousness on Twitter, you know, that sort of thing. Also, if you're into the social media thing, you can find me on Twitter. Just search at American Hiscast. I do not have a Facebook page for the for the show. Um, and if you have a comment or concern, feel free to email me. My email is seanworswick at mac.com. That's my name, seanworswick at mac, M-A-C dot com. Okay, so on with the show. This week, our song of the week is the Crawdad Song. And we'll see you on the other side. You get a line, I'll get a pole, honey. You get a line, I'll get a pole, babe. Where you going, boy? You get a line, I'll get a pole. You go down to the crawl that hole. Honey, baby, mine. Get up, Kate, slept too late, honey. Get out of that bed, gal. Get out of that house. Get up, Kate, slept too late, babe. Get up, Kate, slept too late. Has a crawl dead man done past our gate? Honey, baby, mine. Oh, oh. I stood on ice till my feet got cold, honey. Sit on ice till my feet got cold, babe. Sit on ice till my feet got cold. Keep it down in that crawdad hole. Honey, baby, mine. Well, I run my hand in the crawdad's hole, honey. Okay, after the siege of Veracruz, General Winfield Scott took about three days to solidify his position before he began making plans to move towards Mexico City. In the meantime, Santa Ana had moved his forces to within about 50 miles of Veracruz, setting up a defensive position about 50 miles to the north and west of the town, near the village of Cerro Gordo. Here, Santa Ana had about 12,000 soldiers at his disposal, as well as some artillery, um, all of which was aimed at the road which he believed the Americans would appear, or where he believed the Americans would appear. Now, Santa Ana had made the correct move. He was aware of the fact that his best chance of stopping the Americans depended on his ability to prevent them from climbing up and out of the coastal lowlands. Uh, In those areas, it would be expected that yellow fever and the other tropical diseases would cause the U.S. Army to suffer high casualties. As historian Peter Guardino notes in his recent work, The Dead March, yellow fever brought to the New World by African slaves and had contributed to depopulation in the lowland areas of Mexico after 1500. It had also prevented the Spanish from reconquering Mexico in 1829 and the French efforts to retake Haiti in the early years of the 19th century. 
Now, furthermore, this area worked in Santa Ana's favor, as this was literally home territory for him. He grew up in the region, and he fought here during the Mexican War for Independence. Um, he believed that the American advantage was their ability to quickly deploy artillery against large concentrations of Mexican troops that were caught out in the open. So he was trying to find a place to fight where that advantage could be negated. Thus, he chose um, Cerro Gordo. Now, here he could place troops and artillery not only across the road, but above the approaching Americans on either side of the canyon. However, the Napoleon of the West, um, as he had been called, might have been too smart for his own good. His chief of engineers, Lieutenant Colonel Manuel Robles Pezuela, felt the terrain was actually too difficult for the Americans, and it would thus be better to move a few hundred yards further on, or back further. Um, this would allow the Mexican cavalry to be effective. Now, the problem was that Robles Pezuela had never seen the effectiveness of the American light artillery, and Santa Ana had, and so he overruled him. He then attempted to convince Santa Ana to place the troops to the north of the road, thus insulating the Mexican army from the possibility of an American flanking action. Again, Santa Ana demurred. He felt he didn't have enough soldiers to cover every possibility, and further, he felt unlikely the Americans would mount a significant attack through that difficult terrain. Now, unfortunately for the Mexicans, the Americans once again had a bit of luck, or perhaps it was simply another instance of incompetence on the part of the Mexican army. Either way, on April 11th, American scouts came up the road. The Mexicans, rather than allowing the American scouts to continue, fired on them. The Americans then retreated down the road, now well aware of the position of the Mexican army. So let's look at this a bit uh, further. First, the forward unit was led by Brigadier General David Twiggs, who wanted to attack immediately. But lucky for both him and the American army, the party that returned had a good idea of the size and the strong position of the Mexicans. Thus, Twiggs held off and instead decided to collect some more information. Now, Twiggs, I should note, had a force that consisted of about 2,600 men, two light-filled batteries, um, six 24-pound artillery pieces, two 8-inch housers, and 10-inch, oh, I'm sorry, four 10-inch mortars, and a squad of dragoons. So he assigned a young officer named Pierre G.T. Beauregard of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to the task of discovering exactly what the Americans were up against. And Twiggs was well aware that Santa Ana was in the vicinity, and he would have been worried about being caught unawares by the Mexican general. Now, Beauregard, of course, would gain fame in the Civil War, but those days were still over a decade away. In the meantime, after hours of arduous movement up and down hills that were covered with thick scrub, Beauregard found himself near the rear of the Mexican army. There were a few dozen soldiers and a handful of cannon on the highest hill named El Telegrafo. This was the extreme left flank of the Mexican army, and he was open to an attack. In other words, he'd hit the jackpot, if only he could convince Twiggs. Now, just a bit of information about Twiggs provided by historian John S.D. Eisenhower. Um, at this point, Twiggs was 60 years old and not your young, dashing commander. Um, he was stout and a robust man with a bull neck and of medium height. He had a gruff appearance, and his demeanor was um, gruff as well. Nonetheless, Eisenhower tells us that he was popular with his men based on, quote, his brusqueness and his coarseness, end quote, as well as his habit of swearing vehemently on any occasion. In other words, he was the sort of commander that most soldiers enjoy. Now, armed with this new information, Twiggs ended up amending his previous idea 
of a frontal assault. Instead, he decided to include a flanking attack on the hill early of the morning of April 14th. Now, luckily for them, his superior, Major General Robert Patterson, countermanded that order. This, it is believed, presented a disastrous frontal assault. What Twiggs wanted to do was basically to split his force up, some attacking the front, some attacking from the side. Again, thankfully, uh, his commanding officer, Robert Patterson, decided, yeah, we're not going to go that way. Now, Winfield Scott himself arrived on the afternoon of the 14th, and on the 15th and 16th decided to send out some more engineers to check out the terrain. One of those was Captain Robert E. Lee, um, and he worked on the north of the Mexican position and confirmed what Beauregard had discovered. Further exploration found a route all the way around the road behind the Mexican position. So out of this, Scott decided to use a division commanded by General Gideon Pillow, sadly a kind of weird last name there, um, but to assault the front only to hold their attention while another group led by Twiggs would use the northern route to launch a surprise attack on the enemy's flank. And of course, the problem was that this plan meant that the Americans had to move large number of troops and equipment through ground that the Mexicans believed was impassable. Now, the terrain was difficult. In the end, the soldiers often had to lower cannons down into ravines with ropes and then haul them up the other side. As you probably know, there is a saying that the best laid plans of mice and men often go astray. Now, lucky for the Americans, there was plenty of brush and broken terrain which acted to hide them from the Mexican lookouts for several hours. However, they were eventually discovered, after which Mexican officers sent more troops to El Telegrafo, as well as a neighboring hill named Atalaya. Twiggs, for his part, was uncertain about exactly where his troops were and what was going on, thanks to the dense brush, and thus he sent out a scouting party to climb, believe it or not, Atalaya. Needless to say, fighting broke out there. Now, neither side had a particularly large force in place, but the Mexicans were outnumbered, and they were forced to retreat to El Telegrafo. Now, the Americans did attempt to dislodge the Mexicans from that hill as well, but that was unsuccessful, and they retreated back to Atalaya, followed by a barrage of insulting banter. The day essentially saw the U.S. suffer from heavy casualties, and Santa Ana, thinking the attack was Scott's main effort, exulting in victory. The main attack finally took place on April 18th. Pillow had strenuously objected to his mission as being a desperate undertaking. Scott tried to assure him that he was not to attack until the firing from Cerro Gordo could be heard, at which time the entire Mexican line should collapse, assuming everything went according to plan. Pillow agreed, finally, to carry out the mission. However, his execution left something to be desired. After he became exasperated with one of his commanders, he directed an outburst at Colonel Wincoop of the 1st Pennsylvania, which was loud enough to alert the Mexican batteries, which then poured grape shot into the 2nd Tennessee. At that point, the 2nd Tennessee, under the command of Colonel William Haskell, moved on its own to attack the Mexican troops. Just as they moved forward, several pieces of Mexican artillery appeared to reinforce their compatriots, and the Americans fell back in disarray. However, just as Scott had predicted, the Mexican line collapsed by 10 a.m. While the push to cut the road, and thus cause the Mexican forces to collapse, was supposed to be led by Twiggs, instead he became preoccupied with a fight between uh, La Atalaya and Cerro Gordo. So he sent a brigade under James Shields. Shields at this point commanded only 300 raw volunteer infantrymen against 2,000 Mexican cavalry and a five-gun artillery battery. His men were initially repulsed, and Shields himself was severely wounded in the head, only to find out he had been killed later on. 
In the end, he was killed, but the Mexicans, thinking this was only the first initial thrust of a far stronger movement, and thus their defense collapsed. As Eisenhower notes, quote, the Battle of Cerro Gordo had resulted in a victory far more complete than even Scott had expected. Indeed, the 3,000 prisoners created an embarrassment. Scott was probably relieved that over a 1,000 escaped. In the words of one Mexican reporter, Cerro Gordo was lost. Mexico was open to the iniquity of the invader, end quote. Now, just to back up a few days, Polk had made an important decision, perhaps the most important decision of the war, when, on April 10th, he appointed Nicholas P. Trist as the emissary to negotiate a peace with Mexico. That same day, news arrived in Baltimore that Veracruz had surrendered to General Scott back on May 20, March 27th. Deciding to immediately convene his cabinet, Polk let it be known that he felt it was time to appoint a commissioner with, quote, plenipotentiary powers, end quote, who would be on hand at Scott's headquarters to negotiate a peace as soon as circumstances allowed. However, this would not be as easy as it might appear. The prestige to be gained for having negotiated the peace treaty ending the war would be enormous. Whomever Polk chose would surely make other members of the Democratic Party jealous and doom the treaty to failure simply to spite their political rival. So what to do? In the end, he desired to keep control of the process himself and considered sending the Secretary of State. Buchanan, who was Secretary of State, agreed, except he thought it would not be ideal to have the Secretary himself cooling his heels awaiting the time when the Mexican government decided to talk terms. Thus the idea came about instead to deputize the chief clerk of the State Department, Nicholas P. Trist, to go instead. Now, Trist had impressive credentials. He studied law under Thomas Jefferson, was a cadet at West Point, had been Andrew Jackson's private secretary. Um, he was fluent in Spanish and well acquainted with the way people in Latin America did things. Finally, he was dignified, intelligent, personable, and energetic. In other words, he seemed to be ideal. So Trist left Washington with a draft treaty and understood it was his job to get the Mexicans to accept it. Now on the other hand, there's our old friend Santa Ana. April of 1847 found him once again fleeing for his life. Fleeing the battlefield with a ragtag group of soldiers, he first attempted to head towards his ranch, um, El Encero, which was in the area. However, as they were approaching the ranch, they saw some American cavalry in the distance. The Mexicans were spotted, and the Napoleon of the West quickly changed his plans. Soon, they were headed south, towards the town of Orizaba. When Santa Ana and his entourage arrived there, the atmosphere was not positive. But the dictator, ever hopeful, was able to gather enough survivors to form up a force of about 4,000 men. Now, when we assess the events of Cerro Gordo, American military historians tend to cite the actions of Beauregard and Lee, However, I wonder if this isn't thanks to hindsight. Those two would become famous, and rightfully so, thanks to their actions in the American Civil War. However, the reality is that the Americans were able to move in force through difficult terrain, thanks not really to these two men, um, but to, thanks to the rank-and-file troops who made the plan work. The ability of the troops to build a road that allowed them to haul heavy weapons through tangled woods and rugged terrain was due to, first, their sheer determination and their esprit de corps. Secondly, they were well-rested and well-fed. Now contrast that to their opposition, who arrived on the scene determined to strike fast because they were starving and desperately wanted to capture American supplies. Victory at Cerro Gordo meant the Americans were able to move out of the yellow fever country. Further, the Americans were able to easily move up to Jalapa, a nice and temperate town, just a bit closer to Puebla, 
one of the largest cities in the country. Now, after gathering some troops at Orizaba, Santa Ana pushed up to Puebla, where he was able to gather some more troops, many of whom had escaped Cerro Gordo. However, as the American forces approached, the dictator tried to take advantage of the fact that the Americans were spread out. Thus, he launched a lightning cavalry attack, but once again, the Americans deployed their light artillery and scattered the Mexican forces. Now, without enough forces to hold the city, Santa Ana retreated and Puebla fell without a significant fight. It is, in fact, the only major Mexican city that did so during the war, which led some during and after it to question the patriotism of its citizens. Now, in defense of the city of Puebla, they had been demoralized after the defeat at Cerro Gordo, which had used up the money they had raised, as well as the men from the state's National Guard battalions. They were also concerned that a fruitless attempt to resist would lead American troops to kill, loot, and rape. In the beliefs of the day, it was assumed that troops wounded in in an assault on the city were likely to take liberties with the citizens of that city. Scott himself was committed to preventing this, and he and his officers were willing to offer the city and its leaders guarantees, as long as they agreed not to urge the citizens to resist. Thus, in the end, the American army marched into the city unthreatened, surrounded by crowds of curious and mourning Mexicans. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. As I record this, um, I've already begun the writing of the next script, so hopefully that episode will be out soon as well. Uh, Once again, check out the website. There's um, some maps of the battle area. There's some pictures, hopefully, that will help to bring this story to life. And with that, I'll see you next time. Good day. (laughs) 